Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 12. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we spend a few minutes right now in your word... We are eager to know what it is that you would have us to know from what on the surface is a surprising conclusion to this list of blessings, a conclusion that we admit, Father, we would probably not have included in the list of the Beatitudes, which reminds us in this moment that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways and thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And your ways and thoughts are right and they are true. And without you right now with your Holy Spirit sending him to interpret and bring to light these words in their true and real and powerful meaning, we will be at a loss as to understanding what you would have us to understand. And so we come humbly. We ask you, speak to us. Prepare us and train us, equip us for the work of ministry that we might bear faithful witness for Christ in the world and might endure whatever persecutions that you have already providentially planned for each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. And we want to love you more. Help us to love you more. Even now we ask it. In Jesus' name. Amen. His name has become renowned. 
throughout church history as the first martyr after the close of the New Testament. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna in Asia Minor. From A.D. 69 to A.D. 155, he lived. An alleged disciple of the Apostle John, a devout Christian, a teacher of Christian truth, and an influential leader in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. It's no surprise there in the end of the first century, in the second century, that this faithful Christian Polycarp, this leader and teacher of the truth of the Scripture, would come under attack by the Roman government. For most of his life, simply harassed, scrutinized, threatened, but by the time he was in his 80s, they had determined they were going to execute him. Brought into the arena with an uproar of the crowd, the proconsul interrogated Polycarp in front of thousands, calling him to apostatize, to reproach Christ, and if he was willing, then he would go free. And then Polycarp spoke what became some of the most well-known words written by any Christian in the second century written after, of course, this event, cataloged by an unknown writer in a letter known as the Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's recounted this way. As the proconsul calls him to apostatize, Polycarp speaks, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior now? The proconsul responded, I have wild animals. I will, I will give you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp responds, It is unthinkable for me to repent and to turn from that which is good to that which is evil. Again, the proconsul threatened, If you despise the animals, I will have you burned and with stronger resolve. Polycarp responds, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and it is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire that is coming in the judgment and the punishment that is reserved for all of the ungodly. Why is it that you wait, proconsul? Bring on whatever you want. As the fire was prepared, Polycarp began to pray loudly, as is recounted in that letter, O Lord God, the Almighty, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing in the cup of Christ and thus in the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and of body through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice. This Polycarp, now known, that first martyr in church history after the close of the New Testament, became for so many in his own day and time an inspiration. 
The Lord using his life, his example, his commitment to Christ in the midst of the loss of his own life forged a whole line, a whole string of faithfulness as the Lord used his witness as a means for which many Christians over the next several hundred years in Rome would fall to martyrdom. In fact, the center of global Christianity Situated in Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which some of you in this room will know, did a study just the last end of the 20th century, just 20 years ago, cataloging some 600 major uh, events of martyrdom over the course of church history. Looking back and seeing those different martyrdom circumstances and situations, they estimate conservatively that somewhere in the range of 70 million Christians have been killed over the course of two millennia for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Polycarp being the first among the recorded, as you can see, he certainly was not the last. That says nothing about those who were imprisoned, nothing about those who were injured or maimed for the gospel, uh, nothing about those who are sent into exile for the sake of Christ. That is simply a number. 70 million of those who have given their lives conservatively for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says to us, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you didn't notice as we were reading through the Beatitudes just a second ago and you got to Beatitude number eight, it's different than all of the others. Maybe the first thing to notice about this beatitude is it's longer. All of the other beatitudes are one verse with one simple statement. A statement of uh, the blessing, statement of the condition of the blessing, and the reward that comes from the blessing. You can see that in verse 10, we have that summary with this beatitude. But this beatitude goes on with a longer explanation. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus gives to us the only commentary on any one of the Beatitudes that we receive. That's noteworthy. We've come to the concluding Beatitude and Jesus pauses and elucidates or elaborates what he means by this eighth, we may say, culminating Beatitude. That's not the only thing that's unique about this Beatitude. This beatitude, not only is it long, but it is personalized. Notice that all of the seven of the previous beatitudes are in the third person. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They're, they're distantly spoken of as a third person, spoken in, in, a, in an objective-styled statement. But what happens in verse 11 of this beatitude? Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. A move to the second person. It's the first time we've seen it in all of these verses. He moves from a lengthier explanation to a personalized word. And, and just envision it. Who's gathered there closest around him? Well, we're told in verse 1, his disciples. These are the men who will give their life for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not theoretical. This is not third person. In the context of Matthew chapter 5, this is you. As he speaks to Peter or to James or to John. 
This beatitude is different from the others. But that's not all. There's a third quality that's different. The length is different. The second person, the personalized nature of the beatitude is different. But thirdly, notice that unlike the previous seven beatitudes, this beatitude is not something you do, but instead is something that is done to you. It's qualitatively different in terms of its content. He doesn't say, blessed are those who persecute. As if it was an action. It's a blessing of those who are persecuted. He comes to the very end of the Beatitudes. And he is not speaking now of something so much as to what we grow into. But we might say it this way. He is speaking of what we have grown into. What we have become. What do I mean by that? Many commentators believe, and I think appropriately so, that this last of the Beatitudes, a culmination of each of the Beatitudes, as this wave of Beatitudes begin to take hold in the Christian life, the product or the fruit or the evidence that one is living the blessed life, the godly life, emblematic of Christ, is that you become a person who is persecuted. We might even state it in the, in, the, in the way of a question. Do you want to know if you're growing in the Beatitudes? Are you being persecuted? Are you being persecuted? Are you experiencing opposition for your faith? One of the evidences in this blessing is that it's not something you do, but it's something that's done to you. It's, there's, a, there's, an, there's an antagonism. There's an, there's an umbrage that the world begins to take with you because you're poor in spirit, because you mourn over your sin, because you are meek, because you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because you are merciful, because you are pure in heart, and ironically, because you are a peacemaker. The one just previous to this beatitude, a peacemaker. The one who is a peacemaker will receive persecution. Who will reap anything but peace. At least from the kingdom of the world. Now I think these elements, these unique elements, require us, are calling us to pay really careful attention to what Jesus is saying here. To, to dial in, we might say, even a little bit deeper, specifically to what he's saying. Because he's spending more time, he's personalizing, and he's turning the quality of the nature of the beatitude around. And he's trying to say something to disciples, to followers of him, whom he knows will give their life for him. As we look at this beatitude, we want to notice three things. We want to notice... The meaning of persecution. What, is it, what does it mean to be persecuted? Maybe you're asking that question already. How do we define that term? What does it mean? We also want to see, secondly, the inevitability of persecution. The fact that it will come. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And it's a matter of how. And then thirdly, we want to see, in keeping with the irony of the passage, we want to see the joy of persecution. For Jesus calls us into the quality of joy that comes in and through the pathway of persecution. The meaning of persecution, the inevitability of persecution, and ultimately the joy of persecution. Now, what do I mean by the meaning 
of persecution. Well, look at this word that he uses, verse 10, persecution. Where does this word come from? Well, he uses a unique Greek word. It's a, it's a word that means to pursue someone to catch them. To pursue someone to catch them or to apprehend or overtake them. To chase someone in order to grab a hold of them. Now you can see in the midst of that verse, there's an implication of physical violence. To, to someone who's running away, to get them in order to grab them or to lay hold of them. And that's typically what we think of, isn't it, when we think of persecution. We, we think of a, a physical encounter or a, a negative experience of some force upon us, whether through injury or through imprisonment or through exile or death. That is what we think of when we think of Persecution. That's certainly within view in the word persecution here in the Greek in verse 10. But there's also more to it than that. The early church fathers, the Eastern fathers specifically, noted that not merely is this a pursuit that's involved in that word persecution. You can hear pursuit in it. But also you hear in the context of persecution the word prosecute. That a, that a verbal component comes with persecution. And this, this is probably how many of us deal with persecution in our own context in North America. This is persecution that comes by way of the mouth. Someone bringing a charge, bringing an allegation, a verbal attack against you. Notice Jesus speaks of it in that way in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice he's using the language of word to describe the nature of persecution. In fact, he is, he's using a quite demonstrative word. Just as pursuit leads us to persecution, prosecution leads us to persecution. These two notions coming together in this word. This word revile, a word that's used regularly in the Greek New Testament, means to show one's teeth. Now, some of you go, well, that's sweet. They're smiling at each other. They're doing what you should always do in a sweet family picture. Show your teeth with your smile. No, that's not what it means. Think more along the line of what an animal does when it shows you its teeth. When it snarls, when it growls, and it lifts up that upper lip, and you feel the threaten of that animal. That's the spirit of revile that's in the context of what Jesus is after in verse 11. Those who growl or snarl at you with a threat open their mouths and they begin to utter all kinds of evil falsely against you. This could come as an open verbal attack. This could come as a misconstruing of your words. To say that you're saying something that you're not really saying or to shade it in a way so that it could be received or implied wrongly. It could be to impugn your motives could be to raise questions about your character through innuendo. It could be an outright falsely accusing you or bringing an allegation. It could just be a backbiting, a going behind your back, a gossip and a slander. That's often how it shows up. Any of those are within the quality of what Jesus would call persecution. A verbal and then also a physical. Two components, two forms that show up here behind the meaning of persecution. But Jesus says, I don't want to stop there. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted. And then he gives a qualifier. A very important qualifier. You can imagine if the period was just there. Blessed are those who are persecuted. We would, for any reason, any attack, at any time, claim persecution if anybody did something wrong to us, wouldn't we? The fact of the matter is, some of us probably deserve some of the negative we get from the world around us, not because we're being Christians, because we're not acting like Christians at all. And Jesus is immediately ruling that out with regards to what's in view, because what he says here is it's the blessing is for the reserved for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who, because of their love for the Lord Jesus, their commitment to Christ, their faithfulness to follow Christ, when everybody else around them are going to mumble and bring allegations and attack or even physically force themselves upon them, the Christians who are willing to walk uncompromisingly and in love in those moments are the Christians that have a blessing in store. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you can see it, the meaning of persecution is fairly broad. Using words, using force, but anything that is meant to attack the person for their faith in Christ or their obedience to him. Now, let's look secondly at the inevitability of persecution. Every century, every, every century in human history has experienced persecution going all the way back to the very beginning of human history. All the way back to the very beginning. Now, you may hear that and think, that's typical preacher overstatement. Well, it depends on where you would rank the beginning of history. Is Cain and Abel early enough for you? Genesis chapter 4. It's the first picture of persecution that we see anywhere in the Bible. You may not have put it in those categories, but I, I tell you that's the category it should be in. Cain and Abel, the two sons born of Adam and Eve, you remember, bring sacrifices to the Lord. Cain bringing his sacrifice, Abel bring, bringing his sacrifice, and one's sacrifice, Abel's, the Lord had regard for. While Cain's sacrifice, the Lord had no regard for, meaning to say he did not accept Cain's sacrifice, and he accepted the sacrifice of Abel. And then we're told that Cain... In anger and in jealousy for the righteous sacrifice of Abel lulls him into the field and kills him. The very first murder in the Bible is actually an act of persecution. It's not merely an internal jealousy between two brothers. Now is it that? Of course it is that. But it's more than that. The scripture makes it quite clear that it was Abel's righteousness, his acceptance before God, that really angered Cain. And he did the worst that he could do to remove what would have certainly been an exposure of his own heart come through the righteousness of his brother Abel. He wanted to do away with that guilt by doing away with his brother. I was just reading this week again at the end of the book of Genesis because we're going to be there again, friends, coming up soon. I'm looking forward to finishing and concluding Genesis with you in that 13-year study of that long book. We've only been around eight years, so it would be 
Hard to be 13 years. But it has felt like we've been in Genesis a long time if you've been with us. We're re-entering into the Joseph narrative coming up in just a couple of weeks. But you'll remember if you just think back about the story of Joseph, how many times Joseph underwent persecution for righteousness' sake. If Cain and Abel's experience of the physical violence, the, laying, the pursuing to lay on your hands, Joseph experienced the prosecuting persecution of verbal allegation. You remember when he was in Potiphar's house and he was with Potiphar's wife and Potiphar's wife continued to come to him and make overtures to him seeking to seduce him and Joseph faithfully would flee and resist those temptations until one day he was there in the home. She coming up behind him lay hold of him and he flees from her and what does she have in her hand pray tell but his outer garment And what does she proceed to do? Make up a story. A story about the unfaithfulness of Joseph trying to come in and seduce her. And and she fought him off. And all she had here was his coat that was left. And where it happened to Joseph, he immediately was locked away in prison. Now, of course, that didn't stop the Lord or the mission of God. It never does. And in fact, the persecution turned into a blessing ultimately for Joseph, which kind of reminds me of something. Well, it reminds me of our beatitude. Joseph received blessing in the midst of what seemed like a dire persecuted situation. God remaining faithful and showing his faithfulness all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. It was enjoyable this week to read through, as it always is, A.W. Pink's commentary on the Beatitudes. He has this marvelous section where he goes through each of the main characters of the Old Testament and he speaks to how they experienced all sorts and qualities of persecution from Moses to Samuel to Elijah to Nehemiah and then coursing through the New Testament uh, to Stephen to Peter to John to James to Paul whose whole life was a series of persecutions. It makes us take seriously, doesn't it? 2 Timothy 3.12, when Paul, maybe arguably the most persecuted among everyone in the New Testament, could write to young Timothy in the faith, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I said in the early service, of course, that word all is a very complex Greek word. Deep, deep and abiding connotations. All meaning all. Everybody. No one escapes. All who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may ask the question then, if it's inevitable, why is it inevitable? Why does this happen? I mean, because in your mind, aren't you a pretty great person? I mean, you're a Christian after all. I mean, you're pursuing Christ. You're an upstanding citizen. You pay your taxes. You're, right? Those are the kind of things. Well, I'm a pretty nice person. I'm pretty easy uh, to get along with. Surely persecution should not come my way. Why would, the, why would the world be so mad at me? Why would they want to be antagonistic to me? Why well, won't you see the logic of this passage? Think in terms of the Beatitudes. 
usually when you're thinking that way, as I am prone to think, why would, you know, why would people not like me? What's wrong with me? Why would they want to be angry with me? Like when that question rises, I'm clearly not thinking biblically. I might be thinking personality. I might be thinking uh, gifting. I might be thinking all kinds of things, but I'm probably not thinking biblically. Because when you begin to look at the Beatitudes, you begin to see that Jesus has just given to us a charter for the kingdom that is of heaven. He has given us a picture of the godly life of the person who is committed to Christ and following him. And I want to just show you what that's like in relationship to the world so you can see it and understand why at the end of this, the evidence that you're really living the blessed life of Christ, a godly life, is that you'll be persecuted. Let's take number one, for example. The humble and needy poor in spirit. Why would that be at odds with the world? Well, maybe because the world is marked by pride and self-sufficiency. The very opposite spirit that is the kingdom of God that he's nurturing inside of your heart is at play and at work in the world. And when those two meet, they're at odds with one another. What about the repentant heart that mourns and grieves over its sin? How well is it going to do in a world that at best excuses its sin and at worst glories in it? Probably not very well. What about the meek and the gentle and submissive spirit that's always putting itself toward God? And how is it going to fare in a do-it-your-own-way-gets-what-yours world that we live in? Well, probably not very good. There's probably going to be friction between those two. The hungering and the thirsting for righteousness appetite that is to be the quality of living that's true of the Christian is entering into a world that has no taste for righteousness but is instead glutted on unrighteousness. The merciful, forgiving, and full of compassion find no place in a world that says, hold your own. Make sure that you get what's coming to you in the spirit of that. Let them know how badly they hurt you or made you feel. You hold your ground. In a world such as that, where is the merciful and forgiving and compassionate spirit going to find its place? A heart that's single-focused upon purity, on God. Where is it going to find a place in a world that's splintered with the lusts of the flesh and the passions that rise up within us? How is finally the peaceful soul going to be settled in a world that's not at peace with God nor with itself? You see, each of these beatitudes, not only are they a charter for this kingdom of heaven, not only are they a picture of the godly life of the Christian, but you know what they also are? They are a complete affront to the kingdom of the world. They are a living offense to the things of the world. They are an open rebuke to the way in which the world does its thing. Do you see what Jesus has actually given to us in the beatitude is a picture of his own character. The one who came humbly. The one who was really broken over sin, not his own but ours. The one who was really meek and gentle, who was led like a lamb to the slaughter for the sins of his people. 
The one who was truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness because it was his meat and drink always to do the will of his Father in heaven. The one who was really merciful. The one who is a picture of extending mercy to those who do not deserve it. The one who is really genuinely pure in heart, who is single focused upon the heart of God. The one who actually made peace between God and man. This is a picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is giving us a picture of what it is we become. Guess what? It looks like him. It looks like him. This is why in the text, notice verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. How? On my account. On my account. He recognizes that all of the righteousness that he's just shown you, all of the picture and the charter of the kingdom of heaven that he's just given to you to walk according to is actually a marching order that's going to lead you into direct conflict with the world. We've got to get past this idea that Christianity is this sweet thing that's nice and friendly with parlor conversation and doilies and cups of tea. It is, it is given to us a military engagement. He is showing us the authority of heaven that is now entering into and conquering the principalities and powers of darkness that are in the world. And you are the church militant. You're the one advancing, not with swords, the message of good news, with the charter of the Beatitudes. And it's not surprising that the more you look and live like the Beatitudes, the more you look and live like Christ, and the more the world begins to treat you like they treated him. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. John 15, 20. This is why, friends, we need to come to terms with this. If we are genuine followers of Christ and we are never at any level experiencing opposition in the world, a question should rise in our minds. Am I really a Christian? Am I really following the Lord Jesus? Could it be that I've melded so closely to the kingdom of the world, so domesticated the teachings of Jesus, kept so quiet regarding my commitment to Christ that no one would know any different for the way that I live and the way that the world lives as long as I keep my mouth shut and my matters to myself. If I privatize and compartmentalize my faith... So long as I'm over here in this case, I really don't experience any persecution. Except for that way of life is unforeseen in the pattern of the New Testament. Of one who doesn't engage with the world. Holds themselves off from the world. Who doesn't seek to share Christ. Have we so fallen into a pattern like that? That we're either not speaking for Christ or don't know enough Believers, unbelievers, to, to even have a, a pathway for there, for there to be opposition in the world? Can we reasonably expect to submit to the authority of King Jesus and expect the authority of the prince and the power of the air to not align against us? 
Is that a reasonable expectation? I think not. Not based on the passages of Scripture that we've just read. Jesus doesn't equivocate. Paul doesn't equivocate. All who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. I, I wish there was more room in those words. There's not. Now, the same measure of persecution is not what's intended here. doesn't mean if you're not, someone's not pointing a, a gun at you or, or threatening to put a ball and chain around your ankle that you are then not being faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not lose sight of, of what's being said here in the Scriptures. Re- remember, reviling, uttering all kinds of evil and physical components are a part of this. This means that if you're sharing Christ and someone gets frustrated and agitated... That's to be not surprised by. When, you, when you're in a conversation, young people, when you're in a conversation at school or in the neighborhood with your friends and it turns towards ungodly and wicked things and, and you step out of that conversation and you won't have anything to do with it and, and walk away, there's going to be one or two responses in there. There's going to be for those who know Christ, who can be humbled, repented, and come to their senses and say, you're right. We shouldn't be engaging in that. There's going to be another whole group that's going to rise up and mock you and ridicule you, belittle you. You should expect that. That's what it means. When you're in, your, you're in business and you've been faithful to follow Christ and speak for Christ and, and even in context where it's not welcomed and you realize that you get passed over for business promotion after business promotion, that should not be surprising. And you know it has direct correlation not to your work but to your faith. Jesus says that is normal. That's normal Christian living. When you find yourself not being invited to those parties because they know who you are and they know that you're going to be the fuddy-duddy at the party, the stick in the mud, the one who's not going to laugh at the, the jokes or drink too much or get caught in the, in the trouble that everyone else is going to tend towards. And you don't get the invites to that, that party and you think to yourself, people don't want me to be around. They don't. Just know if it's for righteousness sake, it's not because something is wrong with you. That is normal Christian living. That's normal Christian living. Now, you always have to check your heart to see whether it's you. Because it very well might be you. There might be sin that's keeping you from the intimacy of those opportunities and relationships. But more times than not, it is often for righteousness' sake. One of the things that grieves me about my particular role is you get into ministry with a passion to share the gospel and to speak with people. And then you get into ministry and nobody wants to speak to you about anything. You shut down conversations on airplanes and... Uber rides and with neighbors, and you realize they always have the barbecue and we're never invited. Oh yeah. That's a part of the that's part of the thing. There is there is a component of that that is a part of normal Christian living. 
Jesus says, if you are walking in the pathway of the Beatitudes, you should anticipate this evidence to be revealed over the course of your life. Now, I'll be honest with you. As soon as that evidence begins to be displayed in my life, I have, you know, I have to go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. I have to go back to, to deal with the poverty of spirit. And go back and mourn my sin again. Because undoubtedly I'm going to get frustrated by that. Or I'm going to think that that's not right. And I ought not to be treated that way. Well, oh, wait. <laughs> Jesus, you were treated that way. Maybe that should be an honor, not so much an offense. What is real blessing? Might blessing be not gaining the invitation? Not getting the promotion? Might the joy come... Not in getting the promotion or getting the invitation, but the joy coming because you see in the scriptures, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for great will be your reward in heaven. Do you see what Jesus has done? Jesus said, don't look at the party. Don't look at the invite. Don't look at the promotion. I've planned the party. I've given you the invite. You've got the promotion. Look, see, by faith, to the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that's breaking in. The kingdom that's advancing. The kingdom that's moving. Blessed are you who is persecuted. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see where he casts our eye. We had, we, there for a minute, we're talking all about the things of the world, weren't we? We were getting kind of sad. I could see it on your face. You were getting kind of sad. Now look at you. Why? Because you see the kingdom of heaven. This is the joy. This is the joy of persecution. Do you see, this is the joy. This is where the Lord begins to wean your heart from the affections of the world through the afflictions you experience in this world. That's what he's doing. This is why James can say, count it all joy. When, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is that moment where you experience that, that slight, that roll of eyes, whatever attack comes to your mind, minimal as it may be from Polycarp. It falls within the large banner of persecution. The moment that that happens, you know you're probably going to need to go back and your heart's going to be offended. There's going to be difficulties that arise. You're going to need to go back through the Beatitudes and you know what's going to happen. You're going to grow. You're going to grow. That's what James is telling us. And you're going to become like, like the Apostle Paul who as I, as I read of him more and more, I'm just astonished at the courage and the vigilance and the strength that the Lord placed within his soul to run towards the pain of persecution with a smile on his face and a joy in his heart and to be almost killed and to get up the next day and do it again. Like in Acts chapter 14. When the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Supposing him to be dead, they left him, and his disciples gathered about him, and he rose up. And he entered the city again. Now wait, Paul. Let me get this right. They just stoned you and left you for dead. 
Why don't we go somewhere else? That would be, that would be what my mind would do. He rose and he entered the city. And of course, he does move on and comes back to the same city, evangelizes again. And you know what he teaches them? He, it, we're told that he encouraged them continually in their faith. And this is what he said, that through many tribulations, we may enter the kingdom of God. You know what's happening every time that a persecution is taking place or an opposition in your life. Here's what's happening. You must remember that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. He's gone to prepare a place for you. And you must remember in the midst of that persecution that he is preparing you for that place. Both of those things are happening. Cast your eye to the great reward, but count it all joy because he's getting you ready. Because nothing like trial and tribulation and persecution will grow you and perfect you. It will be in persecution where your heart will be revealed. And for the true believer, your soul will be refined. Your heart will be revealed and your soul will be refined. And every time you'll see that there's room for growth and there's a beautiful vista of glory. And you want to grow towards the glory. Casting your eye towards Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And what was the cross? A series of persecutions. Of chasing after him to lay their hands on him. Of trumped up charges in a kangaroo court that would convict him with a baseless charge, all out of love and care to extend to you blessing and to win for you the kingdom of heaven. How could we not then, for a Christ, a Savior who has loved us like that, not be willing to return the favor with all of our lives? He who has given all of his life for us and endured the worst persecutions and have brought to us the greatest blessings. How could we not experience lesser persecutions to come into the place that he's prepared for us with the soul that he's prepared? Friends, I hope that this loosens your lips to share the gospel. I hope that this causes you to give in a way that you've never given before. I hope that this prompts in you to serve, even take risk for the sake of the gospel. Because in the freedom of the security of what Jesus has won in you, has won for you, you have the freedom to go now in his name with the kingdom of God and know that on earth it will be done as it is in heaven. It's just a matter of time. You, through the sharing of the gospel, you, through serving and loving your neighbor, you, through acts of mercy and care, you, through the investment of your time and your energy, God might be pleased to bring forward his kingdom just a little bit further through the work of his spirit in and through you. Father in heaven, accomplish this purpose with this local congregation, with us here in this room. 
Lord, forgive us for the, the overly safe decisions that we have made by simply volunteering in ways that don't really cost us much. For not opening our lips to where we're afraid that we might lose capital in a relationship when eternity hangs in balance with that other person. Forgive us for the times in which we've seen needs that we could meet, but we were unwilling to give the time and the energy for it. Forgive us for the times where we've held resentment and grudge towards others or maybe even anger towards you because we have done something and taken a risk and it didn't turn out as good as we thought it would. And we forgot to remember that great is our reward in heaven. Lord, help us to be those who sow and who water and who leave the growth to you. Help us to be those who don't have to see the outcome and the fruit with physical eyes in order to answer your call, but are willing to live in the mystery of your will, to do what you say and know that nothing that we do in Christ will go unrewarded. Help us to live by faith, in other words rather than by sight. And would you be pleased to meet us in that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.